Welcome to this modern education podcast that explores learning from the everyday exchange of thoughts and ideas to the theories and practices behind entire systems. Think education is cool? So do we. So we pair two conversations, learn about our guests, then learn from our guests, share your takeaways, and come back for more. You're listening to Think, Pair, Share with me, Audrey Scott. Dr. John Stodd is the Executive Director of the University of Notre Dame's Alliance for Catholic Education program. Starting over two decades ago, John has helped lead the recruitment, selection, placement, and formation of teachers in under-resourced Catholic schools in over 30 cities across the United States, and his role has grown to include leading the pastoral formation and administrative areas of ACE's growing number of initiatives. We've long hoped he'd be our guest, and I'm so glad to have him joining us today from our studio in the beautiful new Remick Family Hall, where our colleague Steve McClure helped him get mic'd for a conversation. It's my great pleasure to welcome him to Think, Pair, Share. Hi there, guys. Oh, here we go. Take your screenshot without my glasses. <laughs> okay, let's, no, uh, Audrey. No, I'm kidding. Hi, Audrey. Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. We have the master at work, John. Yes. And Yeti. Okay, now you can put these on. Oh, I have to put the headphones on. Yes. <laughs> Makes me look official. Yes. But this is what Audrey's hearing right now. Okay. Wow, these aren't like uh, beats. They, they aren't sound canceled. Oh, okay, no. okay. Steve, so you've already started recording on the Zoom yes. recorder? Yeah, the Zoom has been going for a few minutes. Okay, great, thanks. You're going to hear a little bit about Liverpool in our, our quest. We're challenging for four trophies right now. We've got two. Has that ever been done before? Never been done. Wow. Now, John, are you also a Liverpool fan? I am because my son is. And it's, okay. uh, you know, he's a Steeler fan and a yeah. Notre Dame fan because of me. And I would say I am a Liverpool fan and, um, you know, a LeBron James fan maybe because of him. So, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I am, I think, a Liverpool fan because of Steve. Okay. So, Steve, I'm going to find something for you to be a fan of because of me. <laughs> no, You'll Steve, never I... walk alone, Audrey. Oh, <laughs> oh I see. Yeah. I love it. Oh, thank you, Steve. And then Thanks, Steve. You got yeah. it. You good? Thank there, you. When I came down here, I was worried because there was a high-pitched like, squeal, this humming that was consistent, but it's gone. Oh, so thank God. I hear it. VAC, so. okay. <laughs> you might, actually, you might be hearing something through this. Slight. Well, I made the claim last night when Jenny and I, um, because of her sister's instigation, did the spirit animal quiz. Oh, yeah. What is oh, your spirit animal? Yes. One of the questions was, what sense of yours is the most acute? Yeah. And it clearly isn't my eyes. I have bad sinuses. Taste doesn't bother me. And I'm like, touch is just generic. So I had to go hearing, you know, oh, which is a, a noteworthy thing after years of listening to the Who and Zeppelin at times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is so fun. I actually asked him, I was like, I feel like one of the first things I remember, I think you were telling a story about the smashing pumpkins <laughs> and I, um, <laughs> thought, oh gosh, cause I also lived in Chicago for a number of years and I thought, oh, that's awesome that you are. And yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> we were in Nashville for a family reunion. All the girls were going to the Grand Old Opry and I just Googled what's at Bridgestone and it was the, the pumpkins and I could get tickets for 20 bucks. Five of us went my brother-in-law and his two sons and Joe, they covered stairway to heaven. I was the soul in bliss. 
<laughs> Do you like Rush? Yeah. Working man, subdivisions. Okay. Awesome. All right. Yeah. Okay. Spoiler. Um, I, I, my friend, Father Neil Walk loves oh, Rush. Oh, he loves Rush. Yeah. He loves Rush. Yeah, so yeah. you know him well. Yeah. He was our pastor. Over there. He's like, <laughs> I, I love like Rush. <laughs> I went to school with Niels and um, oh. so I'll have to have a cup of coffee sometime. Oh, I just yeah. remember Getty Lee from him most of all. So when I was prepping for today's fun questions, uh, spoiler alert, it's a graduation theme. It is the season. Uh, Rush came up under my search for pomp and circumstance. Um, I think part of that is from a song of theirs, I guess. So we could probably chat about music all day long. So we better jump into those fun questions first. So here we go. Sounds good, Audrey. Since you are in part an English lit person, True or false, the term bachelor in bachelor's degree is from baccalaureate, a play on the Latin words baccalaurei, meaning laurel berries. I'm going to say true. It's too detailed not to be, right? <laughs> <laughs> Would you go to such effort for a false? Exactly. Okay. The youngest known college graduate was 10, 11, or 12 years old. I'll go 11. 10. He was... Form, yeah, former child prodigy Michael Kearney graduated from the University of South Alabama in 94 at the age of 10. What's he doing now? Ooh, good follow-up question. <laughs> Stay tuned for the extras after the podcast. I'll find out. I'll find out. Um, okay, which is older, the iPhone or the class of 2022? The class of 2022. Yes, good job. Yes, 2007 was the iPhone. And we're looking, I guess, 2001-ish right. for most of the, except for, of course, this Michael Kearney and his buddies. They, they <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. The traditional graduation gown was born out of a sense of fashion in Italy or out of necessity to keep warm? I would say out of necessity, with no central heating. Yes. Back in the day, back in the way back middle ages, I guess, so poor heating. Scholars wore long gowns and hoods to keep warm. Uh, and so most of the scholars were also clerics, so they tended to wear clerical robes. Okay, uh, true or false? The commencement cap is called mortarboard because of its resemblance to a masonry tool of the same name. False. It's true. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a tricky one. It's uh, said to have been developed in the 15th century, evolving from hats known as berettas. Perhaps you're familiar with these. Right. A square upright caps used by Catholic clerics, scholars, and professors, and were thus named because of a similarity to the mortarboard used by bricklayers. Hmm. Huh. Sort of a random, aren't a lot of things that shape, but oh well, we'll go with it. <laughs> um, okay, so are you a toss the cap or keep it firmly on your head? I never wear it. C. <laughs> Going off the board for a daily double. <laughs> I guess the U.S. Navy were sort of credited uh, in the early 1900s for tossing their caps because okay. they got a different one at the end of it. So uh, they didn't need the need the other one anymore. But um, OK, move the tassel from the right to the left or left to right. I think it's right to left. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Good job. I think at the I was time. Just trying was, to picture this weekend what they were doing. So. Yeah. So it says right to left symbolizes the movement from being a candidate of a degree to a recipient of a degree. Mm -hmm. And um, speaking of a certain new recipient of his degree, 28 years in the making, um, Jerome Bettis, running back for the Irish in the 90s, who made and kept his promise to his mother to graduate from Notre Dame. What team did he play for in the NFL? Now you're just baiting me here. Clearly the Pittsburgh Steelers was his, uh, he started with the Rams, but came to the Steelers and a steal of all steals. 
So <laughs> it's so true. That is so true. Bonus points for his nickname. Well, when he was when Jenkins called him up, I screamed at the top of my lungs, yeah, bus. Embarrassing even my son. <laughs> Love it. Well, I'm sure. Mr. Bettis probably appreciated it. Um, his speech was so so nice. I really, really liked it. Yeah, that. it was beautiful. Yeah, yep. very nice. Yeah, very nice all the way around. Um, and yes, I figured if I'm giving you a mortarboard question, I can at least give you um, a fun uh, gimme from Pittsburgh. <laughs> so since that wasn't overly subtle, um, but I wanted to get us to Pittsburgh, your hometown, right? Yeah, you have a pretty deep-seated love for that city. I'd love to hear a little bit more about why you think it's so special. Hmm. Well, I, it's home. Uh, and I grew up in the 70s when the Pittsburgh economy was um, really going downhill. And so I guess my love affair with Pittsburgh is very much related to its sports teams. The Pirates and Steelers are really excellent in the 70s, and it kind of gave everyone something to cling to. But uh, I love the geography of it. I love the hills. And here I live in Indiana. But um, I love the hills and just the people. Uh, the people in my neighborhood growing up was kind of a blue-collar suburb not too far from uh, the downtown. And um, it was kind of the Charlie Brown world where parents weren't, you just say, I'll be back for lunch, or I'll be back to dinner. And everyone kind of raised everyone else's kids in a way. And, uh, you know, just kind of treasure that upbringing and some of the best people I've known, just they do anything for you. So uh, I see you have carried that tradition uh, with you here. Uh, I think that's your style here as well. So we are certainly grateful for that. Well, you're very kind. Sure, of course. Did your dad follow the sports as well, or was your whole family in on it? Or yeah, my dad definitely. Uh, my mother, not at all. She was sort of appalled that I would waste so much time. <laughs> but um, yeah, my dad and I would uh, kind of wear out the couch trying to help the running back find the hole, you know. And um, so yeah, I kind of came from my father above all. How about like, I don't know as much about the pirates. Was that something that you guys listened to or? Oh yeah. They were excellent in the seventies. So I, one of my first memories, first grade, um, really two of them. I remember the final out when the pirates beat the Orioles uh, in game seven, to win it all. And my dad, we were in the kitchen and there was this little black and white TV was all we had. And he just lifted me up in the air and I banged my head on the ceiling. And I just remember being like kind of crying, but happy and, and all at the same time. And my mom yelling at him that it's only a game. And I knew that she didn't really understand. So that was just a great moment. And then back then they used to play day games uh, for the World Series uh, during the weekday. And I remember in first grade, Sister Mary Rose, I kind of knew how to read a little bit. And I also knew baseball enough. So she had this little transistor radio and the game probably started around, I don't know, 1.30 or so. So we had another hour at least of school. And she said, okay, your job, John, is to sit at my desk and you're going to listen. And every half inning, I want you to come and tell me while I work around the room with various groups, what happened. And I've had a love affair with school ever since. So yeah, the Pirates were great. I remember crying when Roberto Clemente was tragically killed, um, ferrying relief supplies to Nicaragua after the earthquake. And yeah. there's no internet, obviously, in the day. And we found out about it at Mass on New Year's Day when they had one of the prayers of the faithful for him. And I looked at my mom and I said, I just crying. Oh, what are the Pirates going to do? And she kind of whacked me and said, that man has a family. Um, but that was in some ways like my first real encounter with grief. So um, yeah. kind of deep affection for Clemente and the Pirates mm -hmm. during the 70s. And then they won again in 79. Since then, they've been just 
arguably the, one of the worst teams in, in baseball, but uh, yeah. So those roots run deep though. That's, that's planted early. Yeah. Yeah. That's sweet. That's sweet. Um, and I had mine with the Cubs, of course, and I was still living in Chicago uh, when they finally won it again. So I also cried, <laughs> but maybe, maybe but I didn't hit my head, but I still cried. That was a, that was a beautiful day there. Sure. Um, so uh, it, I can, I can understand some of that sort of long, deep love for, for the teams. Um, but thanks for sharing those stories. Sure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I have to laugh. Your mom, she was patient with his love for yeah, all the sports. Yeah. Patient. She, I also got my love of reading for my mother. My, my father, never, I don't know if he read a book in his adult life, um, magazines and the newspaper, but um, my mom was always rationing TV. I'd get the Steeler exemption, but uh, yeah, she kind of, I think is responsible for my love of reading. So well, that's good. Well, you ended up actually English literature, right? But also chemical engineering. So we can focus on right. the literature, which might've been her gift. I'm not sure where the sure. chemical, tell us where the, where those came in. Yeah. You know, I had, um, my grandfather was a powerful influence on me. He, um, only went to eighth grade and then he began working. And, um, my dad had gone to school in the GI bill after the Korean war. My mom had never gone to college late in her life. She took a few college courses, but you know, I was, I guess, pretty good in math and science. And, um, you know, my grandfather was like, you should be an engineer. You know, you'll always have work. And, um, I was like, okay. So I, I did that. And then, um, Notre Dame had that wonderful dual degree program. So I didn't have to decide at 18 on a particular path. And I think organic chemistry was the stick. And then Tom Wurge's English classes of which I took, I think four, was the carrot. And I began to rethink um, what I might want to do with my life. And uh, again, I thought this professor thing would be great because you got the summer off. And I never felt like I would needed a lot of money, but I would treasure the time. I was hoping to, you know, obviously get married and have a family. And I thought, oh, I can take the kids fishing and play baseball and do all kinds of things in the summer. Yeah. So I, I decided to pivot and, and go to grad school in English. And my grandfather was a little crestfallen. He says, look, I love to read, but I, you know, still practice your math, you know, when you're up at Michigan, and I, <laughs> I'm kind of done with math, but that's a, I suppose that's why I ended up going into chemical engineering in some ways as my grandfather. So I was really blessed that my family was supportive and I never felt pressure to use college as a means to a lucrative job, um, which in some ways, when I look at the fairly humble roots I came from, that was just kind of remarkable. Uh, my dad always said to my sister and me, look, I've had to do a job I don't like to feed and, and educate you all. And he says, I'm happy to do that. My dad, like never had a bad day. He was always in a good mood, but, uh, he says, my dream for you is that you just can, you know, get a degree and find work such that it doesn't feel like work. And for myself, I've, I've been fortunate in ACE to, uh, to find that, you know, I, I've always loved the rhythm of the academic year. And um, it's kind of funny. I, I went into academe for three main reasons, June, July, and August, I like to say. So God has a sense of humor. And, um, and for my sins, I've had June, July be utterly the busiest time of the year. But, uh, uh, but it's been grace. And um, it's always fun to welcome a new cohort. And uh, I guess I've been here to welcome many. So for all I joke about the summers, um, I, I really don't feel that it's a four letter word. So good. Well, I'm so glad. And you're right. I think that's a blessing. Not everybody has that sort of support in that, in that way from their family. And I think that's wonderful. Was that something that you wanted to sort of pass along to your children as well? Yes, uh, definitely. My, both my wife and I, and, uh, 
And just, you know, because even just practically speaking, you spend, you know, a third of your day, maybe not quite that, but sleeping. And then, you know, between all the other things, you may as well just do what you love, find what you love and do it. And then, uh, and then contribute to the world. So that's obviously what we try to encourage people in ACE to do both yeah. with that teaching fellows program with the REMIC program, with all our programs, just kind of honor the great joy of being an educator. Doesn't pay much, obviously, but uh, you know, you'll never wonder whether what you do is important. Even if you don't know that you're effective at it all the time. And Lord knows I can look back at many times I've been ineffective. At least I always knew it mattered. I love that perspective. That's really great. Speaking of your family and ACE, so you have three children and I, I believe the youngest. My sweet Anna, she has always loved reading and she has the faith gene in, in a deep way. And when she was little, she would, they'd all come to the ACE masses with me in the summer, not because of piety. I don't think they just like being able to stay up late. And, uh, and then there would, you know, be maybe milkshakes after here and there. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and it gave my wife often a chance just to kind of grab her breath. So Anne has been coming to ACE masses since she was probably three or four years old. And uh, gosh, all the, the ACE teachers and Remick leaders in the past who kind of fawned over my kids and, and really served as these role models uh, yeah. in many ways. Certainly Anna, she always used to say when she was little, I want to do the ACE program and then teach second grade back at Christ the King, or, you know, her parish school, just so I can do sacramental prep. And oh. her, her older sister and brother would be like, you're such a loser. <laughs> You know, you want to go back there. So, uh, you know, she has changed. She'll be teaching high school in ACE uh, down in Mobile, Alabama at uh, Katie Macaluso's alma mater, McGill Toolin, and yeah. Tom Doyle's alma mater too. Tom oh. taught there as well. And so it's a school yeah. with a lot of history. So I'm, I feel, feel blessed she'll be there. And I always say to everyone, I was not part of that decision. Uh, that was all Schoenig and company figuring out where she would go. So. Sounds like they, they knew pretty well that she would be a really great uh, addition there. You've been with ACE for a number of years, sort of, right. several of the early years. I think it'd be fun to kind of hear about some of your memories of how it was then. And I believe in Baden Hall, it was originally, right. um, and then where we are today. Sure. Well, of course, when ACE began, it was what we now call ACE Teaching Fellows. That was ACE for the first eight years before we started the, it was then the ACE Leadership Program. And then the Remick family generously uh, endowed that program. And now, of course, we refer to it as the Marianne Remick Leadership Program. So I came uh, in year three. Uh, so it would have been some like Theo Helm, who many people know. Uh, he would have been a brand new ACE teacher then. And now Father Lou Delfra was uh, an associate director along with me. And uh, Lou was, hadn't yet discovered, I guess, fully his priestly vocation. So the early days were uh, you know, like any kind of startup. They were full of pretty um, sharp turns, right and left here and there, trying to figure things out, always trying to be responsive to needs of the diocese, learning tremendously from the people doing the program. Uh, we Everyone's familiar, I think, with the, the sort of well-worn joke uh, that ACE was christened, always changing everything by the, the first cohort. And um, so, you know, just trying to figure out how to do this as, uh, as best we could. And so fortunately that entrepreneurial DNA has continued in the program over time. And some people on Notre Dame's campus still think that ACE means ACE service through teaching or, you know, but now ACE teaching fellows. And we just had a meeting with development where I use the analogy. It's kind of like 
yeah, the United States was first 13 colonies that became a nation, but it's grown a bit since then. So, uh, you know, I think we probably have well over a dozen other initiatives now, which is exciting. We're always trying to do new things to meet needs as they emerge in schools and dioceses. From the beginning, it was ACE teachers. And um, we also learned, I think, to try to continue to get better by listening to them closely and also to listen carefully to our, our um, partners, uh, superintendents, pastors, principals, mentor teachers. So the word alliance was really prophetically chosen. Very true. Can you talk to me maybe about some of the early people that were inspirational? Or- when I came to ACE, it was still a program that was a partnership between Notre Dame and the University of Portland. When we decided to build the MED here, we needed someone who was a luminary uh, in the field who could also be kind of tenured at Notre Dame. Um, and so we, uh, a professor named John Borkowski, who was kind of the largest grant getter in the College of Arts and Letters, a psychologist, had been involved in, in the ACE program from the beginning. Um, he tapped a friend of his, uh, Michael Presley, who, and Mike was kind of a world-renowned um, scholar of reading cognition. And, uh, and Mike was willing to come to Notre Dame and serve as our inaugural academic director of the MED. And he had such an impressive CV that it ended up being a slam dunk with the academic council because most of the people in the council would have looked with a bit of jealousy at all that he had accomplished. So, so that was really useful. But Michael also was, um, his career was more focused on preparing PhD students and doing kind of high level research. We also needed someone who could kind of get us accredited and bring this sort of pragmatism. And so we identified a, a professor down at Marion uh, College, then now Marion University, named Joyce Johnston. And Joyce uh, agreed to, to join the faculty and, and help us get accredited. And over the years, there have just been so many just amazing human beings that have been involved. So when Presley, after several years, migrated on to Michigan State, which has kind of a stellar school of education, there was this uh, wonderful teacher who'd been involved in ACE um, from the third year named Tom Doyle. Tom also served in the Archdiocese of Mobile, was good friends with Gwen. And uh, he came up in the summers to teach. And when we had this void in the, in the academic directorship, we asked Tom if he would be willing to take it on. Um, Tom had his PhD in physics, of all things, from Notre Dame, just a brilliant man, had been educated in Catholic schools uh, down in Mobile, and uh, it was a real act of love. He, he left his home in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was the president of um, uh, the Catholic uh, high school there, and, um, and came and lived in South Bend and served as our, our second academic director. And there are so many stories of people who have kind of left their hometown to come and work here. I think of Rachel Moreno, who was from Arizona, and she had gotten her uh, uh, terminal degree and was working at King's College, and we were growing, and we needed another academic supervisor. So we had this amazingly, she was the Arizona State Teacher of the Year, and that's why actually she got her PhD. That came with a full scholarship. She started her graduate education you know, as uh, we would say, she would say a mature woman. And, um, and Rachel came and moved to South Bend for a number of years and was instrumental. And, in, you know, just so people like Tom and Rachel, um, who have not both of whom have, have uh, passed on, uh, are just um, some of the most generous, intelligent, inspirational human beings I've ever met. Gwen, Ms. Bird in Mobile, Alabama, has been one of our key partners from the very beginning. She's been on our advisory board since we started one. 
And uh, gosh, I don't know how, probably we've had well over 100 teachers serve in, in the Archdiocese of Mobile over the years, probably, I would imagine I might be getting on to 150. And, and Gwen has always been so hospitable and, uh, and challenging. I know at the beginning, again, the story I've heard, I wasn't here yet, but she, uh, when she was approached about Notre Dame doing something to help, she says, that's great, but I don't need a bunch of white saviors from the North coming down into our schools. And, and that's become, uh, I think, just an important um, caution to us all that, uh, you know, our ACE teachers certainly do contribute to their schools, but they have much to learn. And it's such an intense formation experience for them as well. And we do our best in the two summers that they have, but that's only 15 weeks and they spend, you know, three or four times that amount of time in their schools serving, but also um, being served by the other faculty who, who mentor them, the, the, the administration that helps them become the best possible teacher that they can be. And uh, yeah, Gwen, Gwen has just been a, just a dear friend and, and kind of a marvelous contributor to, uh, to ACE over the years. They all sacrificed joyfully to be part of this movement and mission. Beautiful stories about some of those wonderful people. So sure. I appreciate you doing that. No, thanks. In the original or sort of in the earlier years, tell me about the mission, I guess, is its core mission and why that right. resonates for you. Right. So we were probably in about year five or six. It may have been when the MED came to Notre Dame. The first four years, the University of Portland provided the Master of Arts in Teaching degree. And as ACE grew, it was really outstripping Portland's capacity for their faculty who were very generous. I mean, coming here in the summers to teach and then doing a lot of supervision far from the Northwest because uh, we began in the Southeast. So we decided we'd really need to build an MED here at Notre Dame. And so we did. And uh, it was around the time we had to sort of think for the academic council, like, well, what's our mission? So it was very simple at the outset. And I think it really hasn't changed too much. It's just to sustain, strengthen, and transform K-12 Catholic schools. And it has a variety of iterations and you know a few more clauses and things. But that is really our focus, um, just doing what we can to, uh, to shore up and revitalize these treasures of the church and, and we think national treasures as well. For sure. It's not just the Catholic school's survival, right? But the revitalization. Exactly. Ultimately, we believe that all children are made in the image and likeness of God. And that's the that animates all that we try to do. And we believe that the study of mathematics, chemistry, history, English is a way for children to come to know God as well. And that schools need to develop their gifts, not just intellectually, but morally, socially, physically, and just holistically. And so we need better and better Catholic schools because we feel that the students in them, these children and youth, deserve the best possible route to become who God created them to be. In the end, we, we focus on institutions, but it's really what those institutions can do for the, the students uh, and, and the families connected with them. So yes. mediocrity, isn't that's not, not in our DNA, we hope. <laughs> no, it is not. At least we aspire to be, to be excellent in all things. I think you're on the, the right track there. Did a need arise? I guess this gets a little into the history, mm -hmm. but there used to be maybe a lot of sisters and priests right. teaching. Can, can you help um, some of our listeners understand where sort of that started to change? Sure. So to go back to the year of my birth, uh, kind of inauspiciously, 1965 was the apex of K-12 Catholic school enrollment in the United States with over 5 million students. 
Uh, now it's about 1.7 million, I believe. So kind of a two-thirds decline in the last 57 years. But what happened after the Second Vatican Council and sort of the all kinds of social forces in the 60s led to a lot of uh, a decline in religious vocations to both priesthood and consecrated life. Uh, the American Catholic school system, above all, is really built by the sisters. I mean, I, books have been written on this, probably not enough books, just kind of heroic work of these women. But a lot of them were leaving the convent. Not many were replacing them. And so already by the time I was in grade school, uh, Catholic grade school, I had nuns for three out of my eight years there. And um, when I went to Central Catholic High School, we had Christian brothers my freshman year, I had all but one course taught by a Christian brother. I went back a few years ago. I think there are three Christian brothers at the school. So clearly, you know, what, what's happened and where ACE comes in into this story is we stand on the shoulders of these giants, uh, especially the sisters. And I guess you could see ACE is uh, a movement to try to follow in their footsteps and, and some of the work we do where our teachers live in community, there's really resemblances with the way things would have worked in a convent where, you know, some of the younger sisters, the novices would have been mentored by the more experienced sisters and, and become, in many cases, just quite effective teachers in the process. And, and so that decline was, by the 1990s, pretty precipitous and especially acute problem in the South because there weren't many Catholic universities in the South. So in a big city like Pittsburgh, where I grew up, you had Duquesne University, and you had just a lot of Catholics, period, but there aren't many Catholics in much of the South. And so when the, when the nuns left, these superintendents were really kind of desperate to find faith-filled Christians who could go down and not only have the subject area competency, but the kind of zeal and faith that would uh, inspire the students of, of that time. And so that, that's kind of how we got started. I think they were desperate uh, in some ways, and they were willing to take a chance on Notre Dame. One of the things that, that Father Hesburgh did in the 1970s at Notre Dame was he closed our School of Education, our Department of Education. So we have to humbly admit that for 20 years, Notre Dame did nothing directly to help Catholic schools. What was providential about this, though, was it allowed, when ACE was created, uh, Notre Dame to focus entirely on Catholic education with ACE, without any of the baggage that might come from a department where you have professors who um, maybe are indifferent to, uh, to faith-based education, the way grant systems and, and tenure uh, work in, in higher education definitely are an advantage for public schools. There's just a lot more money to get grants and opportunities to study. So I definitely wish our country's public schools were better and I'm supportive of them. But I figure it's okay if one university out of 4,000 focuses in particular, as we do in ACE, on K-12 Catholic schools. Sorry for a, a windy answer. There. No, that's great. And now Notre Dame actually offers a supplementary major ESS, right? Education, Schooling, and Society. Is that helpful? Very much so, because I think what, what we realized, even when ACE was getting started, in some ways it was a response to Notre Dame students who were migrating to Teach for America. And, and our founder, Father Scully, had a good friend, Sister Lord Sheehan, who said, you know, you, I, I really think it'd be great if Notre Dame could do something to help some of these schools. She was a Southerner, uh, some of these schools in the South. And, you know, they put up a, a poster that said, tired of getting homework, then give some, be a teacher. I wasn't here at the time, but the story is 200 undergrads showed up at the inaugural meeting. And I think it shows that there's always been a kind of deep interest among Notre Dame students to do service and even some, some latent interest in education, clearly. 
So I think the ESS, it started as a minor. I think it, it became the second largest minor in the College of Arts and Letters and just last year became a supplementary major. And it's great for, um, for our work in ACE because it gives students an opportunity to learn more about ed policy and pedagogy and, and some of the broader social issues surrounding education. The faculty who are involved in this are just phenomenal. And it really is encouraged students to, to continue in education. Some of them go on directly for graduate degrees um, or into ed policy, but a number do go into teaching programs. And I think it's fair to say the majority that go into teaching programs have chosen ACE over the years. So it's been a real blessing. Yeah, absolutely. The Institute for Educational Initiatives sort of came after ACE, right? Was it in order to house it within the university? Can you help us understand that? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a, you know, again, a providential history. ACE was founded in 94. And then in 96, I believe it was, one of our preeminent sociologists, Dr. Maureen Hallinan, was being courted by the University of Texas at Austin to come. And she loved Notre Dame and convinced the provost that if there were an institute here for educational initiatives, she would be more inclined to stay. And so the original conception of the Institute was that it would be a place where there were a number of sociologists who had kind of cognate interest in education, could do the research. And so it was really seen as kind of a research end. Um, so it was started, I, I want to say, in 96. It was critical, though, for the, the ultimate transference of ACE from the University of Portland academically to Notre Dame that we had an institute because at Notre Dame institutes can grant degrees. And so ACE then, which was kind of independent, became part of the Institute for Educational Initiatives when we started the Master of Education program here. Gotcha. And, and so the Institute is the degree, has a degree given authority, I suppose, um, that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Thank you. That's helpful for sure. And actually we have a new director, a relatively new director, Mark Behrens. We've been talking a lot about strategic mission with that. Um, do you have mm -hmm. a thought there on the work right now and sort of a look forward? Sure. So one thing that's happened, I think, happily over the last few years is we've tried to communicate that ACE is part of the Institute for Educational Initiatives, but it is it's under the umbrella of the Institute um, because ACE has been, I think in so many people's minds at Notre Dame, because it came first chronologically, they've often seen them as almost identical or completely overlapping events. And the Institute's um, a marvelous home for ACE. Uh, the new director, Mark Behrens, is deeply committed to ACE's mission and helping it to grow and flourish. But there are other things that happen in the Institute as well. So there's a rapidly growing center for um, it's called the Global Center um, for the Development of the Whole Child, uh, led by Dr. Neil Boothby, who come from Columbia. And that, that is just growing. He's an amazing grant getter. Um, and then a number of other centers, like the Notre Dame Center for STEM Education, led by Matt Closer, an ACE grad. And I, I won't list all of its various centers. Uh, you can look them up online, folks. But, um, but uh, ACE is, is still probably the biggest uh, within that. And then under ACE, we also have, as I mentioned earlier, probably well over a dozen different initiatives, two degrees, two 18 credit certifications, and then um, other uh, initiatives that offer robust professional development that lead to, you know, we hope, comprehensive school turnaround. We have a, a program in educational access that tries to expand publicly funded parental school choice uh, initiatives. And, and so uh, it's fun. I mean, even during the pandemic, we created three new programs in ACE. 
So I think that that really, I'm, I'm proud of my colleagues. These all just kind of rose internally, people saying, hey, I want to do this because I see a need. You know, we've been fortunate enough to be able to find the resources to support those needs and uh, and they're growing, so. Yeah, for sure. And actually on that score, where do you see the greatest need right now? Where is the focus for you? Mm-hmm. I think broadly and the, the, the most important area that we're trying to affect is the need for leadership. We do that in terms of school principals through the Marian Remick Leadership Program and also through a, a newish program that uh, that has a new name called the uh, ACE Principal Academy, which works with current Catholic school principals to try and build their capacity and improve their performance. And uh, again, one happy thing, I suppose, that came out of the pandemic was educators, like many other folks, became more accustomed to learning remotely. And so our, our initial work in, in this Good to Great program, uh, the ACE Principal Academy was based in Chicago and it involved a lot of face-to-face coaching. Now we're using Zoom and we're able to reach principals in a number of dioceses across the country. And the ambition there would be to have this really grow so that, uh, you know, you could walk into any school and say quickly, there must be some, some ACE person leading this school. And leadership is the most profound lever for change. Um, so there's a huge effort across ACE to kind of attract and form leaders. Um, and it starts with ACE teaching fellows in some ways. Many of them migrate into positions of, of leadership in their schools in time. But we see it as ongoing. And we even have a superintendent's workshop and retreat that we do every summer. So the goal is really to, at every step of Catholic education, offer initiatives to help, again, sustain, strengthen, and revitalize those schools. Great. Thank you. The demographics of the church uh, have been changing, focusing on Latino families and um, the transformational nature of communities. Can you talk a little bit about that going mm-hmm. forward in the church? Sure. So, um, you know, it's it's just a fact that uh, the, the Catholic Church in the United States is going to be largely Latino. And in some ways, the church in the United States has always been an immigrant church. Uh, you know, go back to the 19th and 20th centuries, you just drive through Chicago and you see, you know, the Polish Catholic church and school and then the Ukrainian Catholic church and school and the Italian. And so um, these were founded uh, to support immigrant populations and typically staffed by sisters from that same um, linguistic and cultural background. And, and the church, we believe, needs to be much more responsive to the, the newest sort of wave of immigrants particularly those from Latin America, but also um, from Southeast Asia, Vietnamese, Filipino. Um, these communities are sort of some of the most vibrant um, Catholics, and they're also younger uh, demographically. So um, it's really a shame that only 4% of school-age Latino children go to Catholic school. And there are reasons for this, financial, cultural. You know, in, in Mexico, for example, Catholic schools have existed typically for the oligarchy, not for the working class. And so we're just trying to do everything we can to, um, to help school leaders and pastors present a welcoming environment for the Latino families in their midst, but also through the Hernandez Fellows and the ENL program and other initiatives to equip the educators in those schools to serve English language learners um, more effectively and also just to be more culturally literate and effective. Um, obviously, a lot of Latinos in this country 
don't even know Spanish. So it's not just the language, but it, there is a cultural um, dimension that we think our schools really need to, to get better at in many cases. And, and when it can happen, it's just miraculous, the kind of growth that we can see. I just look at Holy Cross School here in town, which uh, is situated a mile and a half from Notre Dame. And through the efforts of Dr. Katie LaShawn and her team, has embarked on a, a two-way immersion or a dual language instruction track. And so the enrollment since they began this has gone from about 180, I think, to almost 400, just in about four or five years. So these are the kind of things, my dream in ACE is why can't we be the center for a network of dozens and then maybe hundreds of dual language or two-way immersion schools, uh, you know, especially English, Spanish, but uh, in, in multiple languages. Um, what we found at Holy Cross is that Anglos actually um, see these as a great way for their children to learn because they realize by eighth grade, my son or daughter will emerge bilingual and what a gift that is. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, it's, it's really been an important set of initiatives. Um, we hope to make the church and its schools more responsive to these, um, this, this new demographic that's growing and represents the church of the future. But also, if we can do so, that will, I think, in turn, revitalize many Catholic schools that are at this point struggling with enrollment. So it's a win-win. Absolutely. Stephen, I had the pleasure of going down to Austin, Texas a week or so ago to the Cathedral School of St. Mary. And oh, oh, sure. what, a, oh, what a vibrant community that is and so welcoming. It, it was transformational. Oh. You're educating these incredibly intelligent, compassionate people who are going into the ACE program. And, and they're seeing a lot of stuff in these schools and just in the world that they want to do their best in, in helping with. And I know um, diversity, equity, inclusion certainly comes into some of those mm -hmm. elements and it's a large concern of how to best be helpful. Um, right. can, can you talk a little bit about that and how ACE is incorporating some of those uh, best practices? Sure, happy to. You know, gosh, it would have been shortly after George Floyd's killing that we received a letter signed by a number of our alumni, uh, ACE graduates, that challenged us, one might even say accused us, of not doing enough in this area. And it was hard because it's hard to take because those of us who have been doing this work feel in our hearts we are very committed to this. But it, it also was a check to say, you know, what can we do more and what can we do better and, uh, and how can we listen carefully and learn? It's obviously a quite a painful time in, in the history of the United States. And we see that just this past weekend with what happened in Buffalo. It's just like, I remember when Columbine happened, that's all people talked about for days. I stopped my class that day at Notre Dame and we just talked about that. And we're getting used to this as a country, shamefully. And so, uh, so we really have tried to rededicate ourselves to not just be a follower, if you will, um, but a leader in this area. You know, we recognize that um, our team needs itself to become more diverse. But uh, as my colleague Ernest Morell says, you know, the, the first question you have to ask is, who are you serving? And on that count, the majority of students that ACE serves are low-income people of color. And then you have to ask, well, who's doing the service? And we, we put a lot of work into trying to form cohorts in, in our teaching fellows and our REMIC leadership program who are themselves diverse. And then the next question is, and the final one, well, what about your own organization? So I would say we have a lot of progress to make there. What I, what I would also say, though, is, uh, and we are deeply committed to this, and here's where I think we, we may have 
things to offer Catholic education and even the broader church. Rather than see the work of DEI as somehow in conflict with Catholicism, and there are certain elements or manifestations of DEI work which can be driven by agnostic, even atheistic power politics. And frankly, we're not interested in that. But we think it all comes back to the gospel, the example of Christ, and, and the body of Catholic social teaching, which, uh, which tells us that every single soul is uh, made in the image and likeness of God. And I can't think of a more, um, in some ways in our own time, radical um, animating principle and, uh, and things like preferential option for the poor, solidarity, all this rich body of Catholic social teaching, I think has so much to offer our country and, and really the world. Racism has a particular history, um, an agonizing one in the United States, but it's certainly not confined to the United States. It's a problem throughout the world. And I think the church certainly has its own painful chapters in this history. But if we just return to the gospel and the principles of Catholic social teaching, we have a lot to offer the world, I believe, uh, and, and Catholic schools in particular in this area. Practically speaking, what has this meant? Well, we've rethought how we try to form our ACE teachers and our REMIC leaders and, and even ourselves. Uh, we've devoted a number of retreats uh, of our team to these themes. It's never going to be a problem that is solved, uh, obviously, but one has to live in hope and, and constantly try to leave things in better shape than they were received. I suppose. There is an element of hope to what you're saying, and I appreciate that. Oh, thanks. Um, actually, on that score, are you hopeful for, for this uh, sort of immediate future and past that for mm. ACE and, and others? I choose to be hopeful. I mean, to be not hopeful is to just give in to cynicism and then what's the point? So I, I think, you know, it's a theological virtue, and uh, I just choose to be hopeful. I don't think that makes me naive. I, you know, I hope not. Um, or Pollyannish, but I think just hope is something one has to work at and choose. And uh, whether one's involved in the environmental movement or one's involved somehow in geopolitical challenges, are we going to be on the cusp of a third world war? We don't know, but I think one has to kind of use one's gifts as best one can in one's corner of the world and, and what one's interested in to try and approach challenges with hope. And so I just kind of choose to do that. Yeah, one could look at the narrative of the last 50 some years and think, you know, this is pointless. There's a great line in The Lord of the Rings by my favorite character, Galadriel, who says, for ages, I have fought the long defeat against evil, but she herself refuses to give up and it's still worth fighting. And so, yeah, I don't think the next few years are going to be filled with a ton of great news. Um, we're at a time of great disaffiliation of young people and even, you know, middle-aged people from organized religion, et cetera. But maybe this is a call to the church again. I think it is to, to me to, to go back to the gospel, to go back to the root of, of Christianity. And, um, you know, the reason the church spread so well early is just everyone around looked and said, why are those people so filled with joy? I mean, that's the question. So I think we just have to be people of joy, even in the face of challenges and struggles, because we know in the end, beyond this world, Christ's cross and resurrection is one final victory. So, you know, as the old song goes, how can I keep from singing? We just have to choose joy and hope, even in the face of stiff headwinds. Do your best. That's all you can do, I suppose. But it's worth doing. Otherwise, 
what are you going to do? Just crawl into a corner and suck your thumb. That, that's not much of an option. I'm going to pass on that. Um, and, and people pay me not to sing, but I, I take your point, <laughs> which uh, I, I appreciate so much all you're doing for ACE, the whole organization and Catholic schools. And we're lucky to have you. And thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you, Audrey. You, uh, you do this splendidly and uh, you've, you've made it a lot of fun for me. So appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. Take good care. And thank you all for joining us for Think, Pair, Share. If you enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Check out our website at iei.nd.edu forward slash media for this and other goodies. Thanks for listening. And for now, off we go.